Welcome to Decoding Digital Health, a Ropes and Gray podcast series focused on legal, business, and regulatory issues impacting the digital health space. My name is Megan Baca, and I'm co-head of Ropes and Gray's IP Transactions and Licensing Group and co-head of the firm's Digital Health Group. I have a background in computer science, and I practice law in the heart of Silicon Valley. So I represent pharmaceutical, biotech, data, software, artificial intelligence, hardware, and technology companies and investors on complex IP and technology licenses, collaborations, and other transactions. Today, I am thrilled to be joined by John Vaughn, who is Lead Product Counsel at Verily Life Sciences. John joined us as a guest panelist during our webinar hosted by Health, that's H-L-T-H, called Digital Health Dealmaking by Biopharma and Tech, an innovation match made in heaven, question mark. You can replay that entire webinar either on the health website or on the Ropes and Gray digital health website by just searching for that title. On this episode, John and I will dig deeper on some of the topics we explored during the webinar, including partnership strategies between biopharma and technology companies, as well as the key opportunities and challenges associated with digital health innovation deals. Hi, John. So let's kick things off. Why don't you tell us about Verily's focus in the digital health space and what your role is there? Thanks, Megan. Happy to. Verily is an alphabet company combining a data-driven, people-first approach to precision health. We are focused on generating and applying evidence from a wide variety of sources to change the way people manage their health and the way health care is delivered. So we're shifting the paradigm from one-size-fits-all medicine to one focused on a more comprehensive view of the individual that leads to a more personalized path forward. There are a lot of different ways to talk about precision health, but I'd just like to focus on three. One is a wide variety of data inputs, both clinical and non-clinical. Second is a focus on using that evidence to arrive at the most tailored personalized intervention for a person in our community. And third is sort of a paradigm shift from the way healthcare is typically practiced to something more integrated in the future. And here at Verily, I'm the lead product counsel and I lead a team of product lawyers who help our colleagues manage our products throughout the product life cycle. In technology, product is a technology category, but in life sciences, the analogy for my group might be a regulatory or commercial legal team. Um, I also have served as the interim commercial lead here at Verily, and I am, uh, for the better part of a year and a half, I'm sort of the interim lead of the corporate legal team as well. So it's been amazing working with a talented group of lawyers across a lot of different disciplines here at Verily, and in the 18 or 19 months that I've been here, um, learned quite a lot about um, how to manage the interstices between healthcare and life sciences. It is totally a fascinating space. Um, so let's talk about products then. Um, you know, you mentioned kind of the whole product life cycle. Um, if we look at kind of go-to-market strategy, this is obviously a paradigm shift in terms of how products are launched and provided into consumers or in the B2B space. Um, so can you tell us uh, what are some of the challenges that companies are facing in terms of go-to-market go or GTM strategy for digital health tools? At a really high level, the main challenge companies face is aligning the expectations of their customers and their end users with the product that you're manufacturing or the service that you're providing. And so that can come in a variety of different um, ways. You know, here at Verily, we have a number of different product platforms that have everything from something that's more traditional like healthcare software as a service to software as a medical device to actual devices or artificial intelligence and machine learning products. And when you're working across those different categories, aligning perspectives and incentives, both from a B2B perspective and a B2C perspective, to make sure that there are no surprises and that we're all working from the same definitions and the same 
general set of expectations. So for instance, um, there are a variety of services and products that might make sense in theory, but they require a careful analysis in legal terms. So for instance, um, if you are um, trying to promote you know, healthcare software as a service to a large healthcare network, you might have a fast way of getting something done. You may have a good way of creating value, but are you thinking carefully about whether um, introducing some new tactic into, let's just say, how uh, healthcare is provided or how healthcare is um, administered might, you know, from an anti-kickback risk standpoint, distort healthcare incentives or um, does the product you're providing, even if it works really well, have a clear path to reimbursement? So, um, for instance, certain pathology tools might work really, really well. They might really, really be fast. Um, but are you going to get alignment of all the stakeholders in that ecosystem to make sure that folks understand that your product is faster and better and also could be reimbursed, right, which is really important? Another big challenge is to demonstrate value to the buyer post-purchase, right? So this opens up a conversation about the importance of data. And, and here's where I think Verily has an interesting story to tell. Not only do we provide these you know, different services, but we've got um, large data capabilities that we're able to uh, look at data in new and, new and unique ways. And we can then also quantify to a, to a buyer of a product after they've used the service, um, how that's led to improvements in quality or improvements in um, number of customers using a product or so forth. And so... One way that we also can do that is we can, you know, work on the user experience or UX. Um, you know, we have deep knowledge of the marketing tech stack. And so there are a variety of ways that we think we can do this, but it's also a way of showing that uh, what you are providing is something that is actually providing value and making a difference out there in the healthcare system. And, you know, to that end, I also think you need to make sure if you're a smaller company with, say, a standalone solution, uh, you need to think that it might be challenging for providers and for the healthcare systems who might want an enterprise solution to reduce their IT burdens or prefer easy adoption. So even having a standalone great product, if it doesn't fit into a larger ecosystem in healthcare within a healthcare system, you might face a lot of challenges actually getting adoption of that product, even if it works really well. That all makes total sense. And it highlights, I think, the one of the unique things about the digital health landscape is how it brings together stakeholders with pretty drastically different perspectives. I mean, between the, the technology companies, the payers, providers, pharma companies, the the users or patients or consumers, whatever we call them. Um, so, you know, let's think about building these partnerships across those that unique ecosystem of different stakeholders. Um, in our last webinar, we spoke about the importance of communicating and assessing all of the different stakeholders' risk tolerance before entering into a partnership. Do you have examples of where you and, and where Verily and other, other partners' risk tolerance or other kinds of perspectives didn't align, and how do you attempt to resolve that in the process of deal-making? Sure. It's a great question, and it's one we actually face every day. And you know, I go back a couple of minutes ago when I introduced myself, um, I introduced myself in two ways, right? I introduced myself as a product lawyer, which is a tech term, but also as a regulatory or commercial lawyer, which is more of a life science term. And we're constantly translating both of those disciplines to other stakeholders on either side of that divide. And I do think that you'll see in the future that, that 
everyone in the healthcare system is going to get more fluent at these. But I do think that that point of view is important to understand, both from you as a stakeholder, what your point of view is, and what the counterparty is looking at too in terms of risk. So, um, for instance, um, if you have an app that takes photos for assessment by a pathologist, is that a pathology tool or is that a really great camera, right? Because um, from a tech standpoint, maybe you're focused on the ability to get really crisp, clear, detailed images. But from a life sciences perspective, maybe if you're selling it to a customer, they're going to think about that as an assessment tool. And Megan, as you and I both know, as regulatory lawyers, how you quantify that, what intended uses you use for something that might be very simple that might look like a camera might actually take that into a space that's highly regulated by FDA. So understanding what your value proposition is, understanding um, you know, how this affects the healthcare system is really fundamental when you first start discussing these issues with a counterparty. And the thing that I've also learned, you know, especially as a life sciences lawyer who moved into technology, is that you cannot take for granted that the counterparty understands your point of view or you know, has the same sort of priors that you do when you're assessing a particular situation. So um, again, when you're thinking about you know, telehealth solutions, you know, it's conceivable that you, know, you could speak to your doctor over FaceTime, um, but that would take you into a highly regulated space. And when you're thinking about sort of moving backwards and forwards from life sciences technology, understanding the players, understanding the regulators, and understanding how difficult it is to do these things right really matters in terms of expectations. So that's a, actually a perfect segue into what I wanted to talk about next, which is the perspective of working with less sophisticated or less developed companies, perhaps let's say tech companies, and any strategies that you have for mitigating the risk of, of working with, with less developed companies. And in particular, I would think that, you know, not just on your side conducting assessments to see, to understand the level of sophistication of your partners, but perhaps also things like communication strategies for dealing with them, um, or even even putting yourself in the position of an educator having to kind of inform and, and ensure that your partners understand the obligations that they, they will be under. Have you run into those situations of working with smaller, younger uh, tech companies? Yeah, absolutely. Startup companies tend to have a product um, that is really interesting or really effective and might be a better mousetrap. But understanding how that fits into the larger healthcare system is something that, you know, a startup company um, has different incentives, right? They're trying to get something either bought or they're trying to get um, lots of new users quickly. And so something may be effective, but you actually have to sort of work through a checklist. And so there's a couple of things that I would recommend any lawyer or any business development person to be thinking about when they're working with a counterparty that may not be as sophisticated. Um, number one is, particularly if you're making a purchase or a merger and acquisition, working with a firm that really understands both technology and life sciences is critical. It's one of the reasons why I really enjoy working with Ropes and Gray. You've got a lot of professionals who understand, you know, sort of the entire ecosystem that we're working within, right? And that is really important when you're doing diligence. I think the second piece is understanding that um, just because something um, works well as a tech product, you need to really kick the tires on that also as software as a medical device or some sort of healthcare tool, right? And so 
where I do see this a lot in particular is security protocols or whether your API can talk to each other. Um, so if you're trying to plug um, a program into a larger ecosystem, is that going to work? Um, is it secure? I think just understanding that sometimes a particular product or a particular platform might appear great and it might work really well, but there are reasons why there are barriers to adoption in healthcare. And it's important to go into that with your eyes open because you know, technology is only part of that story. And in a highly regulated industry such as life sciences, it's not enough to have something that works really well. It has to be something that works really well and is compliant with all of the laws that you're working with. Yeah, that, that is not an easy uh, easy feat. Talking about the smaller tech companies is, a, I think, a good pivot to the larger partnerships, um, say, between pharmaceutical companies and yeah. um, health tech companies like Verily. And the pharma companies, on the other hand, um, compared to the, the startups, are like steeped in this regulatory environment and just highly aware of the regulatory environment. Um, and so from that perspective, I feel like that almost puts Verily on the other side of the teeter-totter where you're part of a extraordinary technology company. Um, and the risk tolerance and frameworks and regulatory landscapes are di- are slightly different. But also, I think the cultural aspects like expectation for how fast transactions should go and how the teams interact with one another. Um, how has it been, you know, working with the, some of the more traditional um, large pharma companies and, um, you know, how you have to kind of adjust your style of, of um, deal making when you're working with those companies? It's a great question. And coming from, you know, sort of big pharma or big medical device companies, it's been an interesting transition for me. Uh, where you see how fast a technology company works. And one of the reasons why we work fast is because we've got a lot of engineers. We've got a lot of people developing these products. They can iterate products really, really quickly. And what that sometimes means is that when it, because it takes a long time to negotiate with a larger partner, a couple of things can happen, right? You know, one is that technology can change over the course of your discussions. And so that's something to keep in mind. Uh, because you have teams of engineers who are problem solvers, um, they tend to build things quickly and they can iterate different versions of things faster um, than sometimes negotiations might take. And that could be great, but it might also change your perception of the value of a product that you're offering. Um, because, you know, over the time that you've been discussing, you know, this project, we as a company have gotten far better at it, right? So that's just something to be thinking about. The second piece is that what we are offering to our partners in pharmaceutical companies and in medical device companies and in hospital systems are different ways of thinking about healthcare and different ways of thinking about categorizing healthcare, right? So, you know, we offer a variety of products, but we also have insights from machine learning or AI that we're also working with data that will help pharma companies make decisions about clinical trials quicker, right? We have a product that will also help them run clinical trials faster and in more sites and with more consistency. And so um, making sure also that pharma companies you know, or device companies understand that these tools are being engineered by a technology company that has deep expertise in life sciences is important and it's a challenge because the thing that we're offering is speed and efficiency 
and more insights at a faster pace. Um, but the traditional model in life sciences is to go through multiple clinical trials, right? Go through multiple phase studies, make sure that you're constantly assessing a drug or a device over the course of years. Um, and that is just a totally different timeline than a, a technology company would work on. On that note, we'll end our first segment here. John, thank you so much for these insights into Verily's vision to create partnerships that drive solutions across healthcare and life sciences and the risks you face as a digital health company. To our listeners, we'll follow up with the second part of my discussion with John Vaughn from Verily in the coming weeks. Thank you so much for listening today. We appreciate you tuning in to our Decoding Digital Health podcast series. If we can help you navigate any of the topics we've been discussing, please don't hesitate to get in touch with us. For more information about our practice or other topics of interest in the digital health space and to sign up for our mailing list with access to alerts and updates around notable developments as well as invitations to digital health-focused events, please visit ropesgray.com slash digital health. You can also subscribe to this series wherever you regularly listen to podcasts, including on Apple, Google, and Spotify. Thanks again for listening. Thank you.